and welcome to another episode of Streaming Science, a creative student-run podcast series from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We bring the science directly to you. The goal of Streaming Science is to increase science literacy through interactive discussions with scientists about topics that affect your everyday life. I'm your host, Katie Bagneski, a sophomore majoring in Agricultural and Environmental Sciences Communication from Rochester, Minnesota. In 2004, a workshop sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Association for Women Geoscientists called Where Are the Women Geoscience Professors measured the proportion of women in geoscience academia to be 13%. In recent years, this number has grown to 20% according to a 2015 publication by the same authors of the original workshop. Although this number is growing, it remains at a considerably low percentage. To discuss this position of women in geoscience, as well as other STEM fields, I am joined today with Dr. Tracy Frank, here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Dr. Frank, could you start off by telling me a little bit about yourself? I'm a professor in the Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. I'm a geologist, and currently I'm the chair of the department. So can you tell me a little bit about the specific kinds of projects you research and teach about? Sure. I'm a sedimentologist and a geochemist. So what that means is I'm interested in sedimentary rocks. And um, that includes understanding the environments in which they form. So if we go out today and we look at, say, a river system or a system like a coral reef, Uh, sediments are being produced in those systems and they're being laid down and over time they'll be buried and they'll become sedimentary rocks. So I'm interested in the origins of different types of sedimentary rocks, what they can tell us about the earth in the past in terms of environments, um, changing climates and that sort of thing. Specifically I'm interested in limestones. Um, Limestones form If you go out today, the most obvious place they're forming is in coral reef settings. So you go to the Bahamas, you go to the Great Barrier Reef, someday those are going to be limestone deposits. And limestones are really interesting because uh, they're formed primarily from the hard parts of organisms. So think about corals that put down hard skeletons made out of calcium carbonate, um, mollusks, snails, clams, those sorts of things also make shells out of calcium carbonates. There are even different types of algae that have calcium carbonate in their leaves and things. And so all of these things leave a fossil record behind and we can see how the the organisms making up reefs have evolved through Earth history and understand something about how the oceans have evolved. But their skeletons are also chemical precipitates and it turns out that those, uh, those shells record the conditions in the ocean at the time they formed. So we can look at the chemistry of these deposits and understand things about the temperature of the oceans in the past, nutrient levels, all sorts of things like that. And so those are the sorts of things I'm interested primar- in primarily, understanding earth environments in the past, how they've evolved through time, Um, and there's also a practical application to all of this. It turns out that limestones and other sedimentary rocks are the main reservoirs for fossil fuels, uh, hydrocarbons or oil, 
and uh, understanding where to drill involves understanding where the porosity is, where all the holes are going to be preserved in these different types of rocks. And so understanding how these sediments go from being sediments in a modern environment to being a lithified rock uh, can help uh, geologists predict where to drill for oil. So it's kind of, um, you know, on the one side I'm really interested in climate and climate change, but on the other side uh, there are economic ac applications as well. Mm -hmm. So what led you to this part of science? Well, that's a good question. Um, a few things, I think. Both of my parents are scientists, and so they always encourage that sort of curiosity. Um, they're both in the life sciences, though, <laughs> not geology at all. Um, we did a lot of traveling when I was a kid, so every summer we'd take a road trip, and a lot of times we'd go camping in national parks and things like that. And the national parks have some amazing geology. So I was always curious about how those rocks were made, how they got there, <clears throat> the stories they could tell. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine going to Yellowstone and seeing all the volcanic processes or uh, the Grand Canyon and seeing the layers and thinking about what they represent. Um, my family also lived for a couple of, of years in Nairobi in Kenya. My father was a visiting professor there, helping set up a veterinary, uh, a vet school, basically. Um, and we did a lot of traveling there as well, and I got to see volcanoes, I got to see the Great Rift Valley, I got to see some of the amazing archaeological sites where they found early hominids mm -hmm. and that all just stayed with me I guess and then in high school I had a couple of really fantastic earth science teachers both of them had graduate degrees in geology and so they were really excited about geology and they even took us on field trips mm -hmm. so we did geology hands-on in the field when I was in high school and that played a role as well. But, you know, when I went to college, I guess I didn't, I didn't think about geology as a career. You know, I hadn't really thought about the fact that someone could be a geologist and, and, and work as a geologist. Mm -hmm. And so I actually started out as a music major. I did too. Did actually. you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What did you do? <laughs> um, voice performance, but then I switched to what I'm in now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I was in bassoon performance, okay. and I got the degree, but partway through I realized that hours in a practice room really weren't my thing. I was heading towards being a high school band director, and I knew that wasn't going to be my thing. <laughs> and I, I was minoring in geology at the time, and I decided to turn it into a double major, and here I am now. <laughs> Dr. Frank mentioned rocks being able to tell a story. Her job is to read and interpret this story. I asked her to talk a little bit about the importance of relaying the rock's story to the public to increase science literacy. Well, I think it's important, especially now, 
where climate change is such a big issue, for us to understand what our planet has already been through. You know, we've got four and a half billion years of history. Well, if you think about the rock record, there's only about three and a half billion, only three and a half billion <laughs> recorded there. And um, by looking back to see what the Earth has been through in the past, we can see how far the climate swings could possibly be. You know, what are the extremes that the Earth has seen in the past? And how fast has climate changed? And how has that affected um, everything from not just temperatures, but ecosystems and the oceans when climate has changed in the past? So there have been a couple of enormous transitions in climate change mm -hmm. in Earth's history. Uh, and, and it's the transitions that I'm particularly interested in. So if I just go back and, and think about some of the huge stories in Earth's history, um, mostly they're associated with catastrophes, but mm -hmm. hey. So if we go back into the Precambrian, which is, uh, we're talking about 1 billion to 750 million years ago, the Earth went through this uh, period of glaciation, but the glaciation was really extreme. It's called the snowball Earth. And the rocks tell us that most of the Earth was covered in large ice sheets for times, and that these ice sheets extended all the way from the poles almost down to the equator. So for a while, people thought that the Earth was completely frozen over. Now we know that there were probably areas that weren't quite frozen over. It would have made it impossible for life to make it through if, if the oceans had been completely right. sealed off. Yeah. But uh, that seems to have happened a couple of times during the Precambrian. And that had, you know, the, the last time the ice sheets melted back, so when the ice was covering the ocean, it limited the amount of oxygen that could go into the ocean. So the oceans were anoxic under the ice sheet, which can support certain types of life, but not life as we know it. During this time, there was a, a single supercontinent called Pangaea, mm -hmm. and a huge portion of it was located at the South Pole. And areas around the South Pole became glaciated. And there seems to be some connection with the evolution of plants and plants starting to grow in coal swamps and affecting the carbon balance on the Earth, which affected CO2 in the atmosphere and affected climate changes. Mm -hmm. But then there was this climate change going on as well. In a few places, there's evidence for meteorite impact. So the situation surrounding that is not well constrained. But we can show that we came out of this ice age we had runaway global warming. We lost the ice sheets at the poles, sea levels rose. It's very reminiscent of what's happening today, mm -hmm. except the time scale was much slower than what we see today because natural processes generally can't, uh, well, in the, in the geologic past, they haven't happened at the rate um, that we're seeing today because we're artificially injecting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Right. What do you think the 
general public should know about climate change because it's such a controversial kind of mysterious topic right now and mm -hmm. it's a big topic right now um, so I'm just wondering from where you are in your career with all of your mm -hmm. knowledge and understanding um, what do you think the public should know? Well to me as a scientist it's not a controversial topic right it it's happening right <laughs> um, and I guess what's what frustrates me is it's become a political issue and of course it's because money's involved mm -hmm. so the reason why we're seeing this climate change is because of we're taking carbon that's been stored in the earth for millions of years and we're oxidizing it and putting it into the atmosphere as CO2 which is a major greenhouse gas mm -hmm. so in earth's past that's happened mainly through volcanism and things like that we're putting it into the atmosphere at a significantly higher rate right. than any natural earth process could and it's hard for us to predict what that's going to do to earth systems because we haven't been in a situation in the past where the earth has had to respond to such a quick injection of CO2 mm -hmm. into the atmosphere. Um, so what people need to understand is that the situation right now is different than what we've seen in the past. I hear people say, oh we've gone through, the earth has gone through climate change in the mm -hmm. past. We know in the Cretaceous when the dinosaurs were around it was really warm and there were no ice caps and the earth survived. And that's true, right? Right? Sea levels were higher. We had crocodiles and things up at high latitudes, palm trees. So all of that's true. Um, the, the difference now is that people are here. Right. And we have uh, built our civilization based on the climate that's been in place for tens of thousands of years so all of our economies rely on the climate right now and I wish it wasn't such a politicized issue the scientists are in agreement with this um, and people should respect the knowledge that the scientists have in the same way they might respect their doctor who makes a diagnosis that you have cancer or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, respect the scientists who study the earth and have made this diagnosis based on a lot of evidence. So now that we've gotten to know Dr. Frank and her research a little bit better, I wanted to ask how she got to where she is today as she grew up with not only a dad, but also a mom in science, showing her that women can be in science too. So my parents are both uh, in veterinary medicine, but not practicing veterinarians, they're in okay. research, wow. right? But, so they, they met in vet school, and when my mother went to vet school, I think she was one of two women in her class. And they were very reluctant to let any women in the vet school and so my parents met there but it was the 60s at the time and um, they got 
married while my dad was working on his PhD. So you do a DVM, and then if you want to go into research, you do a PhD. And um, she got pregnant, and the thing you did in the 60s was you stayed at home and you raised your kids. Mm -hmm. And so she stepped out of the scene while we were growing up. And to her, that was just what you did. Right. But she always in, encouraged me because she saw things were changing. She said, mm -hmm. you don't have to do that. So actually, when I was in high school, um, she went back to school and got her master's degree. Wow. And that was a big deal because here she is studying veterinary medicine. She was studying virology. And it had been... 20 years or more since she got her degree and mm -hmm. you can imagine things had changed mm -hmm. and so here she is taking organic chemistry biochemistry I remember her uh, images of organic molecules taped all over the kitchen cabinets <laughs> because that's how she would would study mm -hmm. and we'd have to leave her alone she could <laughs> study but she ended up getting her master's degree and then she got a job as a lab technician at the at the university cool. in the in the vet school and so when it came for me she was always very encouraging about you know you don't have to take the same track that I did you can just mm -hmm. keep working and you know how has it been like being a woman in science here at this university what's it like here at this university it's been Good. Um, I think I benefited from the fact that uh, one of my colleagues here in the department, she's retired, but uh, she um, helped the university get an institutional grant focused on women in STEM. Wow. Uh, how do you hire the best, how do you increase the numbers of women faculty in STEM fields? how do you retain the ones that are here? Mm -hmm. And so I got to be part of a faculty council where we looked at all of these issues which helped me to network across the university. And the university was very supportive of all of this. And I, I in, in this department alone, I've, I've seen a major change in response to that. So when I came here 14 years ago now, um, there were three women in the department among the faculty. Um, two of, only one had been hired uh, through the normal interview process. Mm -hmm. Two were special appointments, okay. and one wasn't a full faculty member, but more of a. Well, she she ended up being a professor of practice. Okay. Okay. Now, so we were about 10% women at the time. Now we're up to 40% women wow. on our faculty. And I saw a few cases when I first came in search committees where we were discussing applicants. A few things were said, like uh, we were looking for someone to lead a program, you know, and I'd hear things said like, well, we should take this guy because I, I just can't see a woman being a leader of a program and don't hear anything like that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, we don't good. even discuss gender anymore. It's not 
it's not an issue that comes up because we've kind of moved beyond that, I think. And as great as it is that Dr. Frank is among other women in administrative roles at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln today, I wanted to know more about what her undergraduate experience as a female STEM student was like. Well, I was the only woman in most of my classes, Mm -hmm. most of my geology classes. So that was interesting. And there were a few things that happened there. There were uh, a few older uh, male faculty. Well, there weren't any women faculty, okay? So all my professors were men, and I didn't even think about that. I mean, that's kind of what I, I guess I expected that. Right. Um, but one of them would say things like, let's see. Well, I remember one instance where we were talking about landforms, and he was talking about it being like a, a cookie cutter He's using a cookie cutter analogy, okay. but he, mm-hmm. he looked around the room and he said, it's like when you, and then he looked at all the guys, or your mothers bake cookies, you know, just uh, little yeah. things like that. I had another, pro- and another professor teaching us about topographic maps. Do you know what those are? They, sh- they show oh, contours yeah. of elevation. Well, the graphic he used to show that was a naked woman with contours. You can imagine how that made me feel. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't happen anymore. Right. (laughs) And there are always things like, uh, as a geologist, uh, this is true across the country, one of the things you have to do is a field camp. So you spend about six weeks in the summer out in the field mapping, doing all the those sorts of things that geologists do when they're out looking at rocks. And it involves, usually there's a a field station somewhere or you're camping for six weeks or whatever, working, the whole class goes out Mm -hmm. for six weeks. And there were always jokes about um, women going into geology so they could go to field camp to meet a husband Mm. and things like that. That doesn't happen anymore. But uh, I, the women who are a generation before me, they're now, I guess they're, some of these women have just retired. They were in geology at a time when field camps wouldn't allow women to participate. So it was really hard for them to even get a degree right. in geology. So they had to kind of hunt around until they could they found a camp that would allow a woman to come along with them. I guess they were worried about men and women camping in the same area or something like yeah. that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Things are changing in a good way. I'm not going to say that there aren't problems. You do hear from time to time about women especially in field-oriented sciences things happening out in the field. But people are becoming hyper aware of those things. Uh, I think in the past when something happened, it would go unreported by the woman because she'd fear some sort of retaliation. Mm -hmm. But nowadays I think women are more likely to report these issues so people are more aware of them and I think they're happening less often. And things are changing in a good way for women in STEM. So I wanted to give Dr. Frank an opportunity to share any advice that she had for young girls looking to go into a STEM field. Well, 
I think up to the point where you're maybe in the eighth or the ninth grade, you can like science and not be considered a geek. Mm -hmm. But after that point, for some reason, other things can become more important. Uh, maybe you're worried more about being popular or your looks or something like that. I would say keep a hold of your interest in science and don't let peer pressure pull you away from that interest. It's something that can really allow you to do exciting things. Um, it's something that can stay with you for your whole life mm -hmm. and lead to some really interesting careers. So do what interests you, do what you like doing, and don't let your friends tell you it's geeky or mm -hmm. something like that. Just keep doing it because you love it. Awesome. So get involved if you can in science groups. Go to museums. Most universities have uh, camps and things during the summer that students can do. Museums have, a lot of times have special programs or exhibits or things like that. So go and do those things when you get a chance. Or even on your own. If you're interested in rocks, build a rock collection. Keep a rock collection. I know a lot of people who, when they were kids, had a rock collection, but there's no reason to give it up when you reach a certain age. <laughs> Look behind you. I've got huge yeah. amounts of rocks in here. <laughs> And as I sat there in Dr. Frank's office, surrounded by her rock collection, seeing the passion radiate from her as she spoke about what she loves, it reminded me of the way I get when I talk about things I'm passionate about. But I do think she brings up a good point. Don't be afraid to love what you love, no matter if people think it's ordinary or if they think it's weird. I challenge you today to be the most you that you can be, and to not hold anyone back from being the most them that they can be. Whether it's rocks, or music, or economics, or politics, find what you love and pour yourself into it. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Frank, for coming out and speaking to me today. You're welcome. It was, it was fun. I really enjoyed the experience. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Streaming Science. To hear more discussion with scientists like Dr. Frank, go to soundcloud.com slash streaming hyphen science. And for Streaming Science, I'm your host, Katie Bagneski.